beautiful and sumptuous hills of Encino, California. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. I'm not legendary this week. Yeah, well, you will be before the show is over. Well, we're going to find out if wrestling is real or not. It's real dangerous is what it is. (laughs) It'll kill you and your family and friends. That's a sport. (laughs) It's got to be sporting. Joining us live in the Lighten Up Lounge, we've got a lot of stuff to get through today. We have Matthew Randazzo, the fifth. Don't touch that. Any relation to Teddy Randazzo? Uh, possibly. <laughs> possibly. Joining him, FBI informant, former smuggler and porn king. Something for everybody, huh? <laughs> Kenny Gallo. And also manager to the stars, Howard Lapidus. Hi, Howard. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. No, this is my first pleasure. This is your first pleasure? Yeah. Okay. And produced by Magic Matt Allen. A man with... <laughs> <laughs> so many monikers, that way he gets more votes for homecoming. Stumped Wait. you for a minute there, didn't Yeah, it? <laughs> that's right. I was momentarily stunned. Well, the two main things we want to get to today is that Matthew has two books we want to talk about. One is his Ring of Hell, which is about the Chris Benoit and all that weird stuff. And then we have the new one coming out about our friendly FBI informant who happens to be sitting here that if he has a contract on his life, we may be hearing the helicopters hovering. Yeah, from what I've read, it's amazing you're sitting here. <laughs> It is. <laughs> I think some people know who you are. Oh, a few people know who I am. Are they after you? Of course. Uh, well, it's easy to find you if they turn on outlawradiousa.com and listen live from the Lighten Up Lounge. I hear that some people are listening to this. Yeah. Well, I bet they are. Matthew, the first thing, of course, runs through I and a lot of listeners to the show has got to do with the fact that, you know, the recent movie, The Wrestler, which really depicted the underside brutality of the wrestling industry true false uh it's absolutely true uh in fact the wrestler to me actually gave a uh, almost a too rosy view of the wrestling industry rosy let me explain why <laughs> because it did accurately portray the bottom end of the industry but to me the worst part of the industry is actually the top end the corporate chain the world wrestling entertainment where the, you actually see the big money it's actually just as cruel and just as destructive as it is on the lowest end. So people see the wrestler and they'll think, oh, these guys who are working in armories or, uh, or tiny little independent shows. In really- boxing, they call it club fights. Right, right. It's a, in wrestling, it's called indie wrestling, uh, like independent wrestling. Uh, they think, well, these guys are really getting a short shrift. But in reality, the guys who are making a million dollars a year in world wrestling entertainment, the guys who have mainstream name recognition are getting just as screwed. And are ending up a lot of the, a lot of the time in the situation that Mickey Rourke's character, the wrestler, was uh, physically crippled and bankrupt in their 40s, or in some cases dead by the time they're 40. But they still can't let go. They keep going. Well, the, the, making the wrestling industry is such a hard gig. It's a real fame trap. You have to work for a year, unless you're a physical giant who can just walk in the door and get a job. Or a midget. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. Used to be if you were a midget or if you were related, the door was open. Right. Uh, In Mexico, you can still be a midget. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm moving to Mexico. Mask midget. Right. Uh, (laughs) But in America, unless you are literally seven foot tall, 300 pounds, uh, you have to work for years and years and years for literally no money to even get a chance (laughs) in the wrestling business. And because of that, the only people who ever make it uh, are people who've sacrificed five to ten years physically destroying their bodies. And paying for the honor to do so. So by the time these guys make it, these guys have been narrowed down to only people who are obsessed with the industry. And it's their entire life. So when they get older and they have nothing left, these are the people who, they have nothing else in the world. These are people who are obsessed with the business. And that's why you see them sticking around for decades. Well, look at Hulk Hogan. He's been hanging on for years and years when he shouldn't. 
But Hulk Hogan, if you want to look, Hulk Hogan's one of the ten best success stories in wrestling. Hogan is one of the people who, hey, he can still walk. Hogan's still alive. <laughs> That's a success. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Hogan's worth tens of millions of dollars. There's no one else in American wrestling who's made that much money and wrestled for that long and ended up in that good a physical shape. Uh so Hogan actually is that's the best possible case scenario outside of I guess the Rock Dwayne Johnson so, who so, got out. So deconstruct WWE for me. Uh, WWE is a, basically a monopoly at this point in North American wrestling. It's run by Vince McMahon, uh, and the creative end of the company is run by his daughter uh, Stephanie McMahon, who is a young woman uh, around the age of thirty. The company hires its talent as independent contractors. It gives them no health care, no pension, nothing. Though it treats them as employees, they have everything from a dress code to a minutely planned schedule, and they have upwards of 200-something days a year that they work. So they can be cut at any time, and they have and they don't, and the World Wrestling Entertainment not only does not pay for any pension, any health care, it also doesn't give them uh, any sort of travel expenses outside of plane tickets to locations. So these guys have to pay for hotel rooms, rental cars, everything else. So a guy at World Wrestling Entertainment might make $300,000 a year, but he has $75,000 a year of, of expenses. Unbelievable insurance costs, because who is going to insure a pro wrestler? <laughs> and also, the, the, amount of physical, uh, the amount of physical damage he's doing to his body is shortening his lifespan, in most cases, by decades. I mean, these guys work from Thursday to Tuesday, pretty much, right? It uh, depends on the schedule. On, Pretty on, much, though. Uh, and, and well, not not always. They have they have multiple brands in World Wrestling Entertainment that work on shifting uh, on shifting schedules. So some are taped on Monday and Tuesday. Well, they they shoot Monday, then the uh, the uh, ECW goes out on Tuesday, right? Live, uh, they shoot SmackDown on Tuesday, right? And then they'll shoot uh, the WGN portion on some Monday, some on Tuesday. Then they they've got enough they've got enough tape to put it together. Matt, how does somebody become a headliner? How does someone become a headliner? Because uh, it's not really a competition per se. To well, me, it's, uh, it's an entertainment buildup. Right, right. Well, the headliner has nothing to do with anyone's physical skill as a fighter or well anything, said. Or, or toughness, of course. Right. Uh, but it is a competition, and it's in, in that it's everyone is looking for the same money. Because the only way to make the wrestling business work for you is to become a success. The only way to make a wrestling business work for you in America is to get world, get with World Wrestling Entertainment. So it's an extremely cutthroat and competitive business because you're competing basically behind the scenes in a political battle to see who can get the connections, who can make, who can get the friends in the creative department, who can get friends in the, in the human resources department. They'll give you the opportunity on TV. Uh, if you're making a success in 2009 World Wrestling Entertainment, you most likely are a guy with unbelievable physical naturals, abil not ability, but Dimensions. Presence, yeah. Dimensions. I mean, you got to be six to get them to you put you got to be like a big show or whatever. Uh, not, not necessarily, but you have to be at least six foot taller or you have to have a very good physique. And either your dad has to be a someone who has a record in the wrestling business uh, or you have to be someone who is so physically impressive of a specimen that you can get a gig without any well, existing conditions. Well, as, as you're exposing in your book, it's steroids. Steroids and steroids. Well, it, it, up until very recently with steroids and steroids, they do have a uh, wellness program testing. They, they have a steroid testing program now, but uh, there are many ways to get around that. I would, of the people I've talked to in wrestling uh, nowadays, I would say over ninety percent are using human growth hormone or other. Well, a variation on the theme, you know. But in all fairness, that's the same in mixed martial arts or NFL or any other sort, because there's no way to test for human growth hormone.
Now, so. back, in the, back in the old days, as Howard and I were talking, we both worked with Gene Kaninsky back in the uh, the old days. Right. And uh, this is this is where NBC got the rock wrestling connection that they did years right. ago from Kevin Matheny, who was my competition in Seattle. I started that on my show on KOL. Right. Wrestling was in a down time, and I thought, hey, these guys are like rock stars, except without right. musical instruments. It's a showbiz thing. I'm going to have them on my show. I'm going to be in the ring. I'm going to work with these guys because no one else was doing it. So I did, and then with the first one uh, I worked with was Kaninsky, and he was incredible. Call him on the phone. He goes, uh, what do you want? Uh, okay, you want 60 seconds a uh, night, uh, every night building up to the match. Just let me know when the tape's rolling. Five, four. <laughs> Just bam. Go. Cut off exactly the 60. The guy was a pro. Well, he has a reputation in the business as one of the most professional. And he was, and he was a great guy, too. I, I go backstage right. <laughs> at the uh, um, you know Masonic Temple or the Armory or wherever we had this thing. And he's sitting back there and I'm smoking a pipe, reading Field and Stream. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, pleasure to make your acquaintance. And, and I'm, I had real long hair at this time, like black leather pants and a bright purple shirt. And he goes, oh, they're going to love you. He says, listen, he says, whatever, whatever, I just pay no attention to me. Don't look back. He says, ignore me. Because I'm going to be look like I'm going to try to kill you. He says, but pay no attention to me. He says, when we, when we get in the ring, he says, people are going to start yelling at you insults because of the way you look. This is perfect. He says, walk over and hit the top ropes as hard as you can and scream at them, shut up. The crowd will love you. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and so that's exactly what I did, and the crowd loved me. I did sneak a look back at him. He had a chain around his neck, and he's, like, reaching, trying to kill me. <laughs> it was a great gig. We had a lot of fun. You knew him quite well, too, didn't you? I, no, I didn't. I did. Uh, I, I, but I've got better killer Kowalski stories. I, yeah. I used to have Thanksgiving with him uh, <laughs> uh, year in and year out uh, up in Canada. And uh, a, a refined, wonderful guy. Um you know, and and put on the act, and and you know, we used to talk about how it all used to come together, and I, I was tied in with the Vashon brothers and those guys. Oh, Maurice, Mad Dog, Maurice Vashon. Hey, there we go. And, and when I was a kid growing up in Chicago, my cousin was Ruffy Silverstein, who was a major star, and that was the area where Luthez was the champion, and it was legitimate wrestling. I mean, right. it was not just a show. And then uh, we started getting kinescopes from the West Coast, uh, wrestling from Hollywood. And then came the gorgeous George, the Don Eagle era. The Pat Patterson. Right. Yeah. And that, that, to me, that was the beginning of the changing of wrestling to what it is today. Well, uh, there's footage of wrestling going back to the 1920s and 30s where you'll have some matches where you'll have that type of Luthes type of uh, hooking, which, which what it was called in the business background, which is shoot wrestling, uh, which it's predetermined, but the two guys in the ring are qualified amateur wrestlers who are putting on a show that's it's, it's, it's cooperative, but it's realistic. But going into, like, 1931, 1932, you'll have matches that are clearly very theatrical. So it, the wrestling business is cyclical. And there are actually records from newspapers in the 1890s, 1880s, 1870s of masked superhero wrestlers and guys performing <laughs> flying, flying maneuvers. So wrestling has always been overtly theatrical with a sidebar that's also been somewhat realistic. So it goes in cyclical movements. But wrestling from Hollywood, which was the first to get um, – one of the first to get national – uh, TV exposure is the thing with Gorgeous George specifically that exposed wrestling uh, on a national basis as that sort of overtly theatrical uh, marketplace. Look, I mean, we met eight minutes ago, you, you, and I'm always fascinated by wrestling. I'm fascinated by all forms of entertainment. It's the business I'm in. Uh, the wrestling thing is just 
it just knocks me out to a certain extent. I mean, I see how much money is being made. I see the way they generate it. I see how it all, you know, they add it up to, you know, the storylines add up to the pay-per-view. The master storyline is your WrestleMania. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it's clear to me. Uh, uh, and I still don't really know, you know, and I've been behind the curtain at wrestling here in town. I, you, know, I, you know, when Raw's been in town, I've been there. And, and, and I still don't know. You know, there's, uh, there's so much that I don't know, but you're clearly schooled. Clearly, <laughs> yeah, he knows. And, what, he's yeah, done his I, research. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, So the, the, I have not. Uh, you know, the, there's no argument. There's more of a, a, a thirst for knowledge, and and but I'm wondering. You know, when you say like to somebody makes three hundred thousand and they've got to pay seventy five in expenses. Um, you know, I'm a businessman. I, I I make a whole lot of money and I got to pay a whole lot of expenses. It's just the way it is. And if something's left over at the end of the day. Great. Um, you know, I don't put my body through those gyrations, but my, my mind gets screwed up. Right. But but it, it's it, it's you know the the wonderment is 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 you know you seem to be somewhat negative on it. I mean, you, you, and, and you're yeah, and, and that's just the impression I get. No, that's clearly I am very okay. So well, because of what you researched and found out about the champion Benoit. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I wrote that book. Uh, the focus of the book is Chris Benoit, but I was interested because I could. Chris Benoit was a guy who went through every circuit in the world on his way up to becoming a WWE. And wasn't he like the world champion at one point? Right. Yes. Right. Uh, but I used Benoit's story as a way to give a behind-the-scenes look at wrestling in Mexico, Japan, and the United States. Because I was, by complete chance, and I might be able to give specifics, I was in a position that I knew insiders in every part of the industry, including in Mexico, including in Japan, where I lived. Including in the United States and every promotion, ECW, WCW, WWE, um, in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s. So I use that as not, if you read this book, as a biography of Chris Benoit, right. though, it, though it does act as that, but as a behind the scenes tour of the wrestling business over the past I'll 30 tell you, years. Behind the scenes, that Japan stuff is pretty damn dangerous. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to get some of the stories, I, I broke, I don't know, 100 stories, uh, including. A, murders that were covered up in dojos in Japan and things like that. But to get back to uh, Howard's question, uh, I am negative on the industry, and it's not that I'm negative on the pro wrestling. I'm not negative on people watching pro wrestling. I'm not negative on the art of pro wrestling. I'm not negative on that, but I am negative in that pro wrestling used to be a kind of mom-and-pop territorial kind of carny business. Right. You know, it was a secret brotherhood. It was something... Yeah, kayfabe, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it used to be something where there were thousands of people who were making a decent middle class or a better living. The guys like Gene Konitsky were NWA champions who could travel, make larger livings. But it, wa it wasn't something that was a multi-billion dollar unified monopoly in which certain people are making 99.9% .9 of the income and the 1% the people actually are performing are making a minuscule amount of money in, con in comparison to the amount. And if they get injured in the ring, is there medical personnel on staff to take care of them? There's, medical, there's people there in case there's serious injuries there, but their medical costs aren't covered unless it's something... A grievous. Uh, I mean, unless, you know, something that's a direct result in the ring. And that's only if Vince McMahon and co. decide to offer them that. There's nothing in their contract that offers them any medical expenses whatsoever. And this is after the fact? This is while they're... If you get injured in a WWE ring, mm -hmm. they may offer you medical expenses. But they may cannot. is a big word. When, when, it's a huge word. When do they make this decision? <laughs> uh, <laughs> way to the hospital? Uh, I'm going to tell, tell you a story of a, of a story that Iron covered in, in, uh, in Ring of Hell. Uh, there was a wrestler in, in W by the name of Aaron Aguilera who came into the TV. You know, good buff kid. He got a good push uh, on TV. He's going to be a star. <laughs> right. Uh, and he injured himself in the ring. 
Right. And he goes backstage and he says, can I see the uh, chiropractor on staff, the person on staff to help me feel better? Uh, and once Vince McMahon heard about this, he had him fired. Because he goes, and th- this is a quote from someone on the staff. This may not be an ide- exact quote. I have to look at the book. But he goes, this, this guy's been here, what, a month? And he's already seen the medical staff? I don't want a pussy like that on my, on my team. Wow. If you're, if you're a guy who's been there, if you're a guy who's been there 10, 15 years and you have recognition, you can use... the Undertaker is somebody that right. maybe... So you've right. got subjective medical coverage. I love it. Well, That's a, a great <laughs> term, subjective <laughs> medical coverage. Right. If, if, if you... If the que- the question is, have you paid your dues? If you're a guy that's paid your dues to the industry, you can make use of that sort of thing. Yeah. But if you're a, a younger guy or you're a guy who's new to the industry and you get the reputation as being soft, you can just get fired and there will be no pension, no... no medical coverage and there are guys who have catastrophic injuries uh that i mean the over something around 100 wrestlers over the past 15 years who have been on tv in north america have died prematurely 50 years why am i not surprised well you take a look even at mick foley in that match that uh, is coming as the movie beyond the mat which right. i'm sure you've seen where he doesn't where he doesn't, thank you, Matt. Matt's standing sound effects. Where he doesn't know that the thing has collapsed behind him and he backs up and he falls through and crashes through everything, just beats the crap out of it. And his first question is, Vince, was it okay? Did it look good? Well, well there's a famous story of a, of a, another WWE champion who's actually Chris Benoit's best friend who I cover extensively in the book by the name of Eddie Guerrero, who was a guy who was about five foot six, a uh, Mexican-American gentleman who the only who was one of the most talented wrestlers you ever meet as far as skill on a microphone or skill on a ring. But because, Ay, Chihuahua! Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, because he was such a small guy, the only way that he could make it in wrestling, and the only way he ever got a chance as a main eventer, was that he took so many steroids. I mean, if you looked at this guy, he looked like he had like almost like a bat wing coming out from his neck. <laughs> he was a, Oiga, senor. a living fire plug. Right. And uh, he took so many steroids that his heart gave out oh, before the age of 40, uh, and he died. Uh, while while in WWE, while about to get, art, while in main eventer there, this is only a few years ago, and at his funeral, one of his brothers, who was another wrestler, comes to Vince McMahon and apologizes for his brother's death because he knew it was very inconvenient for the business. Oh, jeez. But it was. It was inconvenient. If you look back, Matthew, come on now. Yeah, but, I mean, it did it did derail a lot of important storylines. Yeah, really, yeah, sure. you got to do a lot of rewrites yeah, now. But it, right. it, but it gave us Vicky. Come on. Right. Uh, so it's one of these things where there's this... It's kind of like a lot of like the mob, which is another one of my subjects, where you're in this insular, and also like a lot like pornography, uh, this insular underworld culture, where you're kind of brainwashed, and to to make it, you have to to go put yourself through so much self destruction and so much humiliation. By the time you get there, that you you believe that the industry is more important than you. Sounds just like radio to me. We'll be right back after this commercial message. One thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. 
The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom Said Kill. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. And our special guest, Matthew Randazzo V, Kitty Gallo. Kenny Gallo, they haven't shot you yet, have they, Kenny? No, I'm still here. He's still here. Well, the show isn't over yet, Kenny. They could be homing in with a GPS device. He doesn't moment. know who I am, does he? No, no. <laughs> no. That's, uh, no. That's Howard. You know who Kenny is? <laughs> I, I'm figuring that out. I, yeah, you now. I, I do know. He's a I, nice I, kid from Orange County. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Orange County. Yeah. Grew up. He had many uh, side hobbies and interests, such as. Oh, you tell him, Kenny. Well, let's see. I sold, moved a few kilos of cocaine. I hung around some Costa Nostra guys here in. California, Los Angeles, actually right here. Shot some porno right down the street from here. Uh, <laughs> My house. Yes. <laughs> points of everybody knows is 0.3 miles. <laughs> With a great view. And a few other things. It's really sad when I, I'm watching porn and I see my backyard. It's, <laughs> it's a tragic it's, one. It, it is not good. saw a gorgeous uh, apartment that was in Woodland Hills. I, I, I sent a tweet to the actress that said, God, it's a great apartment. Don't much care for the shoes, but the apartment's great. <laughs> where, where, where's that apartment? It's Woodland Hills. That's a beautiful place. <laughs> that bring back a lot of memories for you, Kenny? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there we go. <laughs> so you were doing porn. Not doing porn, but you were like what investing in it. And... No, I was a. I shot it. I was a. First, I was an investor. I was a producer. Then I became like a director for whatever that means. And uh, <laughs> moved to the left. Yeah, and then I. I just used to shoot a lot. I started doing the camera work. So I probably did about three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Three hundred. Three hundred. Oh wow. Yeah, and then I. I would distribute it. I had a couple of adult bookstores on my own. So. How'd that go for you? Uh, that was tremendous. I just the business is a grind. It's kind of it's just like wrestling. It's just like the thing, and it just it's a play on you. words, isn't it? <laughs> the bump and a grind. I go all. It just really wears on you. Yeah. They don't wear much in it, though. However, yeah, but all the businesses wear on you. Yeah. Uh, this one's a mental wear because it's just the, the it takes the mystery out of life. Between the the drama between the women all the time, and the, it's like it's kind of a sad story. It's almost. Well, it's it, it's got to be. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have been friendly with Mary Carey over the years. Okay. And uh, no sadder story. Right. There's no. There's no, no. good ending. There's no, no. There's no happy no. ending to any of these stories no, here. Not at all. No, only at the massage parlors. So now I want to find out. If we were talking about Ring of Hell, which is Matthew's book about the uh, the wrestling industry. You, you do have horrifying stories about people getting the crap beat out of them in Japan, murdered. I mean, it's just shocking. You read this stuff, and it 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 makes the whole glitzy world of professional wrestling seemed so horrifyingly seedy. I mean, it was carnival seedy when I was a kid. You know, well, well, yeah, I mean, and the difference to me is if there's something that's an authentic, uh, like, part of a part of the uh, pop culture of a certain area and, you know, it's a little seedy, it's kind of like a backwater thing, that's one thing. But when someone's making billions of dollars in a corporate environment in a publicly traded company, and are still treating people like, uh, like as Carney Town, USA. Well, no, it's, they're treating them worse than they did in those days. But we treat them as as, been, as less than human as pack animals. Uh, I mean, that's something that's different for me. So you're saying that's happening right now? That's the WWE as we see it. It's a well, I mean, WWE only a few months ago fired a longtime referee when he came down with cancer uh, because they said, "Oh well, you might this might get in the way of your dates, so we fire you." 
I mean, that's... So here's a billion-dollar corporation publicly traded, and, and this is what's going on? Well, yeah. I mean, this is a company where they had... Chris Benoit was a WWE champion in 2004. At the time, this is a man who, only a few years earlier, had broken his neck in the ring. Not, not, no, let me repeat that. Well, he used broke, to do these headbutts. Right. Well, that's he? the thing. He would do a flying headbutt off the top rope, which basically means I'm going to fall face first on my forehead <laughs> oh, from 10 feet in the air mm. at, at high velocity. <laughs> and he would do that every match for 20 years, which led to catastrophic brain damage all four lobes of his brain and his cerebral cortex but this guy in 2004 was a wwe champion he was the face of a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company and this was a gentleman who at the time only a few years earlier had broke his neck in the ring and wrestled continued to wrestle in ladder matches and cage masters matches for four weeks afterwards despite having a broken neck and being partially paralyzed because he didn't want to inconvenience vince mcmahon Oh, and so this is a guy who every time he f- took a bump or fell uh, in a ring was risking death. Not not and he already was partially paralyzed and had a broken neck. He was risking death. And these type of stories are not rare. And in 2004, Benoit, when he was champion, was addicted, according to his own account and his own father, was addicted to steroids, speed, uppers, downers, painkillers, alcohol, and and also was uh, physically abusing his wife. And this is the face of a of a publicly traded company. This is an extremely seedy business. I wish people think I'm being polemical and exaggerating for effect. I'm not. I mean, this so, is, this this is the reality. This is an extremely dirty so, business. So people say, well, it's fake. It's fake. It's it's worse than real. Is what you're saying? Well, yeah, it's worse than real because if someone is a legitimate athlete who's fighting for uh, athletic crowning and incurs injuries. That's, I mean, that's his own choice. These are people who are participating in largely cheesy comedic farces on TV and crippling themselves for no good reason, because you could have pro wrestling without crippling and killing people. Of course, of course. Uh, So it's less than useless. I mean, you can't really have high-level boxing without people getting concussions and possibly getting brain damage. Uh, And that's a question for people who are boxing fans. I'm a boxing fan. I'm a big MMA fan. but it, wrestling is completely unnecessary. If you have good tumblers who are good athletes, you can do all that stuff and not wind up with broken necks. Well, if you look in Mexico, uh, where you have people wrestle for 40, 50 years into their... I mean, Mil, Mil Mascaris, who's a big star in California, uh, is 70 years old and he's still wrestling. Uh, and that's largely because of lack of steroids, and it's also because the, uh, the, the requests put in on the people in Mexico in the ring are much less. Uh, but people in, the, in WWE today are... I mean, are given no choice of how of how they have to live their lives if they want to make it in the wrestling business. The WWE is really, it's not the only game in town, but if you want to make real money, money. you want to be a real star. Are there actually guidelines? Uh, it's 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 like any other underworld culture. Uh, it, it's unsaid rules. I mean, this is a company that if you make a single political faux pas, you're dead. Not dead literally, but you are no, you're not, you don't have a chance of making it. So if you get into WWE. If you make it to that point, you're already completely on the on the game. I mean, you know, you know how the, the score. Industry, you know how you yeah. know the score. That's the phrase I was looking for. You know how the business works. Because uh, there ain't no say, fees, and you're smart to the business. Right there, <laughs> there isn't anyone who's made it there through the indie wrestling community, which is five, ten year grind of just destroying your body for no money. Yeah, uh, go down to Shreveport, driving uh, miles and miles and miles. Well, to see, make that, it that's, back. A, that's more of the territorial yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, the old territorial days. You worked that way, and everyone piles into one car and drives the, off to the next match. But in those days, you could make a living. Yeah, I mean, these are guys you worked who worked your ass off, but you made a living. These are guys who are wrestling three times a week for twenty bucks. Yeah. Now we'll pick ass money. Yeah. I mean, they're jumping off in the ladders. WWE. No, no, this is this is to make it up to the oh, WWE. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, 
So by the time you actually get to the baby, you already put so much sacrifice of your life and your physical health and your mental stability and your, your family life uh, that you already know 100% what you have to do to get ahead because you've been in this for years. Yeah. What, uh, what determines their compensation? How do they get from 100000 to 500000 It's actually It's actually very interesting because I know people who are, are world champions over there who don't really know. It's a very convoluted formula where they're getting a – they have a downside guarantee where you might get $75,000 guaranteed this year or $200,000 guaranteed. But anything over that is calculated by this extremely complicated – and I've actually seen one of these contracts – extraordinarily complicated formula. Where depending on the gates of the shows you wrestle at, depending on the pay-per-views that you, where, where you are in the lineup, in the, in the lineup, booking, yeah. uh, it goes like that. And there are people who said, who told me that they would wrestle at a full Madison Square Garden one month and get paid this amount of money for that gig at the, and be in the main event. And then six months later, be at another sold-out Madison Square Garden in the main event and get paid half as much. Now, if there's a legitimate mathematical formula behind that, there's no way you should get two different responses to that are that drastically different. Uh, but it's one of those things. If you ask for an audit of your contract, you're blacklisted in that industry. Oh, you well, it's run like a dictatorship. That's what it is. Well, well, yeah. I mean, this is something. It's a monopoly. And when you are the only guy in town and you are someone who doesn't care about your employees, and this guy, Vincent Mann, sim- simply does. I could give a thousand examples. Uh, you have that power to exploit them mercilessly and without bottom. I mean, you can just do anything to them. I mean, now you think even the the most rudimentary business person, if you have, <laughs> if these guys are what's making you the money, you'd think you'd want to at least have some degree of interest. But, but, but that's that's like saying the dictatorship uh, angle is a good thing. This guy, he's made stars for decades. It's like you know Stalin wasn't worried about executing one of his generals. Yeah. He could just be replaced. That's yeah, true. Uh, this is a guy who he can always find another meathead from a gym who's willing to come in and do the same gig. Yeah. And since he believes it's his his visionary creative talent that makes them stars, they're useless to him. And even someone like Stone Cold Steve Austin, I mean, this is a guy who is probably the most profitable wrestler as far as money he made someone else in American wrestling history, or at least in a short period of time. Yeah. No one was hotter. Yeah. Uh, it t- he turned down one match result. One match result. Uh, he's, they wanted him to lose to current UFC heavyweight champion Brock Lesnar, but when he was a rookie in wrestling, they, they wanted him to lose to Brock Lesnar. Austin goes, I'll lose to him. I just don't want to lose to him now. If we're going to do it, this is a big program. Let's build it up for six months and make a bunch of money. And he was kicked out of the company. He said, go home. And so that is the that is the top. That is there's business. There's no one in wrestling who ever have more uh, power than Steve Austin would have had at that but time. He, but when push came to shove, he didn't. Right. I mean, it's almost analogous to the story my, my nephew Lee Goldberg tells me he was writing for Baywatch. And it was one of the actresses who was, you know, supposed to be running and jiggling and right. everything. Comes to him, and, and she's been seated on the show wearing sweats and not bikini. Well, you know, this is, this is Baywatch. <laughs> and the idea is you're just supposed to be running around in the bikini. And she says, well, I want to be known for more than, than just my body. Uh, you know, I mean, can you give me, tell me a real opportunity to act? And he told her the true story. He says, well, last season we had someone who asked that exact same question, and we wrote her a death scene. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the bikini? Why did I know where this was going? Yeah. Where's the bikini? That's right. But, but it's, it's their business. Yeah. And, and if you want to be in their business... You the, play by their rules. Play by their rules. Now, right. the, the problem, though, is 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 where I'm seeing it is is where you know it gets somewhat uh, inhumane. Well, the problem where you where I'm surprised that you didn't come up as an attorney, 
uh, is an ind- they classify their employees as independent contractors. These are independent contractors, however, who have a fully itemized schedule, who have a dress code, who are told what they can say in interviews, who are who are micromanaging every facet of their employee of their life. Uh, yet they're get treated legally as independent contractors by the company. Uh, this is something that that one of the great un, un, mysteries of the wrestling business is what's going to happen when somebody brings a lawsuit against the WWE and challenges that independent cl- contractor classification. Well, how come it has been challenged? I, I was I, I, yeah. I, I had comedy clubs in uh, New York State, Pennsylvania, and Canada, and 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 I paid these guys uh, as an independent contractor. Uh, and I, I, I was challenged. I was challenged by the uh, the, the state uh, taxation board, whatever the hell they were. Uh, uh, I prevailed, but but I was challenged. I was challenged right. in a big way. Well, there's been one legal challenge, uh, and unfortunately, the, the gentleman... I'm a small guy. I mean, right. I mean nothing. Right. He's hardly tall enough to be a midget. Thank right. you, sir. No. <laughs> right. There's there are two reasons why. First of all, is there's a statute of limitations uh, regarding from the date of the contract ended as opposed to when you can file suit. Uh, and most guys in wrestling won't file suit until they feel like they have no more career. Because as soon as they file suit, they're blacklisted yeah, forever. Yeah, they can't work. Right. So there's been one lawsuit, but they waited past the statute of limitations. Uh, I would say as an attorney, uh, if I were an attorney anywhere in America and I want to get a possible multi-trillion dollar class action lawsuit, I'd be the first thing I'd do. I'd contact contact everyone who's ever been on the WWE payroll because that's a monstrous case. (laughs) It's a huge one. That's a monstrous case, and I could. And that's a case where if you ever need an expert witness, there you are. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now, Kenny, this all this talk about how the wrestling world is controlled and manipulated, and the the unspoken rules is this a lot like the the criminal organizations that you interacted with? Oh, for sure. It's exactly like the criminal organizations, and it's exactly like porn. Even the porn actresses and the actors are all classified as independent contractors, yet they're told what to wear, what to look like, what to, when to show up. It's exactly the same thing. And their lifespan, their earning, what is the earning window? We had uh, Hart Fisher was on and was talking about this also. Yeah. Yeah. The earning window of someone in that industry isn't exactly a long time. No, for a woman, it's about uh, three to four years where they can make money. They only make good, big money in the first two years, and they make more money uh, dancing, and then most of them turn to prostitution. A man, however, can last uh, a lot longer. Yeah. He, he can go on <laughs> it 10, depends on what he's taking. Yeah, he can go 10 or 20 years. Now with Viagra, even longer. <laughs> now, i got to ask, how did you – you turned FBI informant. You were pretty mobbed up. Right? Yes, I was. Well, to, to, to give someone an idea of what Kenji was yeah. into, uh, so I don't, he wouldn't want to. It's better coming from me. This is a guy as a teenager. He was uh, one of the top cocaine smugglers in California. Uh, he was tied up. Uh, no, keep uh, tied up, connected with Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel. In the nineties, he in the late eighties, he joined the Colombo Mafia family out of New York City, uh, and then the Milano Mafia family in Los Angeles. And when he left the streets in, of Brooklyn in two thousand, late two thousand four or two thousand five, about two thousand and four, late. Yeah, late two thousand four. He was with the street boss of one of New York's five families to the point, and he was so trusted to the point they actually took him out on a hit team in Brooklyn. Uh, so. It, there are amount, the number of, of Italian wise guys who would want to ever be so close to a, a, basically a street godfather guy in control of a mob family that they would trust him to go on a hit team with them, someone to kill somebody. Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, as a Jap- by the way, in case someone doesn't know this, Kenji is a Japanese American from Orange County. He isn't an Italian guy. He's a visibly. <laughs> no, he, he's how a the vis- hell did you work that? He's a visibly Japanese guy from California who the one of the heads of the New York crime families trusted enough to go on a hit. 
team with him. So that's the incredible thing about Kenji's story. It's not just how high-ranking he was as a gangster, but that he managed to do that despite being culturally very different from the guys <laughs> yeah. in New York. But also ethnically, I mean, knowing a lot of these wise guys, you're very rarely going to meet a wise guy who would trust a Japanese guy to do anything. <laughs> so. Boy, you must have really BS these guys other. who won him over. No, just... Uh, just, just your uh, charm and grace and intrinsic allure? Just very proficient at my job. When yeah. I was told to do something, I could do it. I could get it done without... There was never an excuse. Yeah. Well, that's important. Right? Well, you know, when you make money and you're tough and you can, can uh, take orders, there are very few people like that who are actually intelligent and really tough in the underworld. I mean, people get this impression that the mob today or any other organization is this vast criminal organization full of these criminal geniuses. Most of these people are petty criminals who just happen to have a fancy title in front of their name. And a guy like Kenji, who's an extremely intelligent guy and a guy who's a tough enough to be a professional fighter and that he legitimately is a professional martial artist, uh, is going to be a very rare quantity in that business. What made you turn against the mob? You know what? I just got to, I got to be about 28, and I just, it was just a grind. I just was over the whole thing. I just started, I just felt, I just felt bad about all the stuff I was doing and where my life was. I saw an old girlfriend of mine. She was getting married, and I just realized how far my life had drifted from where I came from. And I just saw it for what it was. I was I'm a smart guy, and I just saw that it was just a few people making money, and we're just exploiting everyone else's weaknesses. It just wasn't good. Were you under indictment or anything of that nature? No. Actually, when I decided to turn, I had not even been indicted at all. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's what they call a turnabout at the deepest seat of consciousness. And how did you survive after you've turned? He was well, undercover for seven years yeah. after he turned. <laughs> after I turned, I was like... Uh, uh, they had they had a small case against me. They they came to me and they said they had a small case, and it, it, I would have done maybe a year at the most, which is about a year and a day. Which I actually just I've been on parole, probation, under indictment, or locked up since I was 15. So really, it wasn't it's not a big deal. But I just I just kept uh, I kept I went undercover. I just went undercover and I did it. And I thought it was going to end every every month, every week, and it just kept getting extended longer and longer. After that, I was taken off the streets of Brooklyn. And, uh, well, you should, you should mention that while in Brooklyn, they tried to kill him. Oh, yeah, we might want to yeah, mention that uh, they tried to kill you, yes. But yeah. they didn't know he was a rat. They tried to kill him just because of his personality. No. <laughs> Common problem in radio, too. From, from a friend. Yeah. No, they actually just tried to kill me because uh, it's all about greed. And uh, I was with one faction of the Colombo family, and they were making a lot of money from construction and a, and a fraudulent tele. Telecommunications. Like telecommunications company, and uh, that company pulled in about uh, twenty to forty million dollars a year. And one of the bosses asked me on the side, "Do you think I'm getting ripped off?" And I said to him, "And I said to him, you don't have, you don't own anything. Uh, these guys have parking lots. They own, they have homes. They have warehouses." And he goes, "Yeah, but I have a trucking company." I'm like, "But you don't really have the trucking company. You have a company that doesn't have your name on it that they own. They ha- they even own the truck lot." And then he asked, he said, "But I have a new Mercedes." I said, "You have at least hundred thousand dollar Mercedes." Wow. We're going to take a, a short break for about a minute or so and come back and hear more about the adventures of being an undercover FBI informant with people trying to kill you. <laughs> right after this. Ciao, sono Felipe Gregorio. 
Dal 1989 i nostri sigari catturano i sensi. La nostra professionalità viene dimostrata in ogni sigaro da noi prodotto. E fumando un Filippo Gregorio te ne accorgerai. Hola, sono Filippo Gregorio e sto fabbricando puros che cattivano lo sentito desde anno 1989. Tengo mucha serietà nella elaborazione dello puros che si può comprovare in cada puro Filippo Gregorio che usted fuma. Salut, je suis Philippe Gregorio. Depuis 1999, je suis en train de faire des cigares qui captivent votre palais et vos sens. Je soigne la fabrication de mes cigares et vous vous rendez compte en fumant à Philippe Gregorio. Hi, I'm Philippe Gregorio and I've been making cigars that titillate and captivate your senses since 1989. I'm extremely serious about my craft and you can taste why in every Philippe Gregorio cigar. In any language, Philippe Gregorio cigars. Simply the best cigar that money can buy. Felipe Gregorio, bringing tobacco to life. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime. Mom said kill. And now, back to true crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. We have Howard Lapidus, manager to the stars, sitting in with us. Matthew Randazzo, the fifth author of Ring of Hell, and break shot about Kenny Gallo, former gangster, mobster, pornster, and then a man who went undercover. Were you tied in with the meddling drug cartel? Uh, yes, in the early, well, mid-80s, uh, I was connected with a crew that worked out of Orange County, California. A lot of them came from, after Miami started getting too hot for him. A lot of them moved here to Southern California. A lot of people didn't even know what the cartel was at that time. In fact, I never even heard him called the cartel until years later. The kilos used to be marked like CIA, which is, a, is Spanish for like cartel, huh. company. They were called the company is what I heard him called all the time. The impression we get is very organized. Uh, the, the, actually, the Colombians were much more organized than the Italians, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah, back in the time. They more sophisticated. They used... Uh, at a higher level, much higher level, uh, and a better distribution, and they had a, a really a lot of planes, a lot of a lot of fast boats, everything. Did they just let you walk away? Uh, the cartel kind of just imploded on itself because of what they did. They fought. They tried to fight the U.S. They tried to fight the Colombian government. I mean, uh, they actually defeated the Colombian government yeah, <laughs> for, for a while until the U.S. helped them. All right. But more, got, more money. <laughs> Well, actually, they went to Pablo Escobar and uh, Gachi Rodriguez blew up an airliner. Right. And they, they attacked the Palace of Justice in Colombia. <laughs> That's rude. Yeah. Well, I mean, we say this about Colombia, but the guy that Kenji with, was with was the viceroy for California, guy by the name of Mike Marvich, who was actually a paralegal uh, in Orange County for many years. And according to the, the feds, I mean, this is not, not even talking to the drug dealers that we know. According to the feds, this is a guy that was suspected of the murder of attorneys, uh, his own wife, his <laughs> wife's wife. ex-wife, uh, girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't kill. Right. right. Not to mention Joe, Not to mention Kenji's best friend and mentor in the drug game, a guy named Joey Avila, who's had a Tahitian Connection uh, cocaine and heroin cartel. So the Colombians, uh, even though the guy who actually was with Kenji, who was the number three, one of the, one of the very top-ranking guys, was actually... Not Colombian. When we say the Colombians, the guys in California were doing this type of outlandish cowboy kind of things as well. I mean, the amount. Of, I mean, 
how would you describe Mike Marvich to someone who, like, someone who wouldn't know? I mean, Mike was an old guy. He was in his 70s. About late 60s and then early 70s, and then he was already moving about a million dollars worth of cocaine a week during the 80s. And, and that was bringing it in. It was brought to him by the Colombians, which, because the Colombians weren't equipped to deal with, uh, like, white people or even the gangs or anyone at that point. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they were just really, uh, they're unsophisticated. They were good at getting it in here, and they're good at, at smuggling it, and, and they had the product, but they couldn't actually... They didn't have the weight to deal with the street dealers and everyone else and get it delivered. And Marvich also had a lot of connections with law enforcement and politicians and judges as a paralegal for 40 years. I mean, he was the guy that um, that Timothy Leary hired when he had been caught on the uh, Brotherhood of a what was it? The Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Brotherhood of Eternal Love, a drug cartel. I mean, this is a guy who was nice one, name. Of, yeah. one, of, one of the top criminal paralegals in, in California. So in his 70s or late 60s, he goes, well, I have all the connections. I had the connections to the Colombians. I mean, he was uh, tied in with Gotcha Rodriguez, Rodriguez Gotcha, who was the number two or number three guy in the Medellin cartel. He was the enforcement arm of the Medellin cartel. He was the guy with the tanks and the submarines and the airplanes. <laughs> Things that everybody needs in today's modern society. Right. So this guy goes from being a criminal paralegal to moving being a criminal <laughs> to moving a million or two million dollars a, a week in cocaine. But in all right. fairness, Mike was some, always a criminal. Yeah, I actually found records uh, that the the the. Authorities don't know about. It. I mean, Mike Marvich was a criminal dating back to 1931, and it did numerous uh, uh, bids in jail, uh, including escaping from prisons and escaping from courthouses in the 30s and 40s. This was a hardened criminal who had transitioned to becoming a paralegal, and then when he got logical the, yeah. <laughs> makes sense, right? Uh, guys who work for you. Well, a- a- actually, it's interesting. A- as uh, what was it? Um, was it Folsom? When he was in Folsom in the 40s, he actually went, taught himself the law, and argued his case up to the Supreme Court on his own. I mean, this is a very brilliant guy. Uh, and when he got to connection with the Columbians, he says, wait a second, I could be making 50 to $100 million a year overnight. He says, hey, I'm old. What's the worst that's going to I believe that he was keeping around that much. No, this no, is one uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was packing away he was packing a million, away dollars, a million a dollars a month. Yeah, that's a, a month or a week. A week. That's a week. Conceivable. Yeah, because what, what happens is back then they got paid about five thousand dollars per kilo or more to transport them. So it's not even that much money to be a million dollars. I know that at one point, like some of the guys that were close to him were just weighing the money because it's a gra- it's a it's a right. gram for a bill. Sure. Yeah. They, we didn't. I got, even when I was around, we didn't even bother counting it. I just left a hundred thousand dollars on the ground. Now, now you know. Do you have the connections still? What? Do you have the? Con- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually I see some of these people. They're a lot older now, uh-huh. and uh, I see them every once in a while, and I. Know him, but I don't. Let me, know let me what put it doing. this way: I've met. Uh, I mean, I knew people in the underworld before I met Kenji. Uh, but people come out of the woodworks to contact Kenji, or some of the heaviest people. If I told you their names, it'd be names some people would recognize. And it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Someone who is an open and open informant. Uh, the people can can contact with him because this is a guy. If you ask around Orange County, if you ask around law enforcement, he has a reputation as one of the toughest son of a bitches ever been on the street. So other street guys appreciate that, uh-huh. and they appreciate how he's made remade himself and and been able to do something with his life. But Kenji, uh, I mean, he might be being humble right now, but this is a guy who, if he wants to introduce you to some people, one of the most connected people in California, I'd say. So, so how my did you... point is this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, my, I don't have that. Problem. How did you two hook up? I mean, here you got a, 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 a true crime writer and a true criminal. I'll tell. You, you want to tell us one? Well, yeah, I'll start off. Uh, I had a friend from Providence, Rhode Island, uh, who's a connected guy. 
his uh, father or grandfather was a wise guy. And uh, <coughs> what happened is he he called me up and he said, you got to come to San Diego. I'm down there. I'm vacationing. You have to come. And, I, and he goes, it's really important that you come on this day. So I said, okay. And so at that point in time, I had to take a plane and then get a ride from someone else and to get there. It was a it was an ordeal. So I got there. I got to this hotel room, and he's like, well, I'm talking to uh, this guy and his girlfriend, and I'm sitting down in this in a chair. And then he says, okay, hold on a second. The door, you know, someone knocked on the door. And I trusted this guy a lot, or else I wouldn't have done this because this is, you know, a spooky thing at this point in my life. And uh, in walks Matthew. The guy says, this is a guy who is writing books and is a writer. You want to write books? You write a blog? I'm going to put you guys together. And he left. And <laughs> that's like a blind that's date. Literally, that's literally how we met. Right. And, uh, I mean, this is a guy who I trusted and knew for years as well in the underworld. Uh, so he tells, doesn't tell me anything either. Uh-huh. I'm, just, I'm going, he goes, here's a ticket to San Diego. And I go, and, it, you know, probably most people wouldn't do that. Oh, I have, I'm with a known organized mm-hmm. criminal who sent me a ticket to San Diego. Let's take it. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I trusted him. I I trusted him. And uh, ever ever since then, I mean, Kenji and I, uh, it was kind of like a match made in heaven. We we saw eye to eye on what we wanted to do with this project. And I think it took us a few years to get going on Breakshot. But I think Breakshot, when people read it, it's going to be unlike any true crime book that's come out, to my knowledge, ever. Because there's no one who's had a career like Kenji. Writing a tell-all like that, what about any retribution? (laughs) <laughs> He's already facing. Uh, they already tried to kill him twice. Uh, oh, so, hello. I mean, so any retribution would just be kind of redundant at this point. <laughs> now, how many times could they kill him? <laughs> right, right. It's not going to make it any worse. You're just going to kill me anyway, so what's the difference? Well, I guess it's got to be that, philosophy. Do you feel that to be true? That, is that your fate? What, that they will kill me? Yeah. No. Okay. But I think they will try. Well, they've tried twice. Yeah. If, if I left an opening, they will 100% kill me. What were the two instances where they tried? Uh, one incident is they tried to lure me into a car and try to get me to a meeting at uh, in did the Staten Island in, uh, about dusk, about six o'clock, and I noticed that there was uh, the guy was really insistent on getting me in a car. There was no way I was actually going to go to this truck lot in, the, in that time anyway. There was just no way, and I noticed uh, as he was trying to pull me into the car that uh, there was two kids that I recognized that our neighborhood like Brooklyn kids shooters, you know, like. Uh, that were that were behind the as backup, but it was in a public place, so they couldn't do anything. So once I got to my car, I was I was safe. I wasn't even worried. And the second one, uh, because of law enforcement reasons, we can't talk about. But that happened in California recently. Mm. Wow. Because so, of what reasons? Uh, why, why can't you talk about it? Law enforcement. It's a it's a sensitive issue because they they were watching somebody and they actually it came up. So okay. Yeah. All right. So we won't. We won't talk about I that. I have one questions, later. though. That's all. Brutal. That's <laughs> ask a question. Yeah, how ask this works? I don't ask know how question. this works. That's it. Ask the question. Let me ask you this: uh, um, We talk about the underworld, and then we were talking about wrestling and, and some MMA. Uh, any? Uh, do the twain meet? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, MMA in Japan, uh, MMA and wrestling in Japan is almost wholly owned or financed by the yakuza, which are the Japanese mafia. So anyone who's ever made it in wrestling through Japan has. Very close organized crime ties. I actually talk about in Ring of Hell how murders in Japanese wrestling dojos are covered up by the Yakuza. Uh, one of the big stories that I broke in that book. And MMA also Yakuza? Uh, MMA, actually the biggest uh, Japanese mixed martial arts organization in history, Pride, actually fell apart because it was it broke publicly in the news that it was a Yakuza organization and it got took, you know, t- taken off TV for that reason. Uh, and, uh, MMA is used in Japan as a money laundering scheme for the Yakuza 
going back to Antonio Noki, who's a famous Japanese pro wrestler and the kind of inventor of MMA in Japan uh, in the 60s and 70s, and even Ricky Dozon, the founder of wrestling in Japan, uh, was killed by Yakuza in a bar who stabbed him in the gut. Uh, what, what, what about the United States? In the United States, uh, the McMahon family at one point, according to people I know in New York, had very close ties. I mean, these are guys who have controlled uh, the wrestling and boxing. It used to be boxing as well, but controlled the wrestling booking in Madison Square Garden and Manhattan going back to the 1920s. So it's literally impossible for them not to have Costa Nostra connections. Uh, I know a, a mob attorney out here, a son of a mob attorney who actually now is an attorney in uh, California, uh, who personally saw uh, payoffs being made to uh, people from the McMahon family. So they would have they would have organized crime ties. Anyone in the old territorial days where there was LCN connection would have organized crime ties. Uh, it's as like record distribution. Right, right, exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is funny considering what house we just went by yeah. <laughs> in this neighborhood. Uh, but nowadays, does the publicly traded World Wrestling Entertainment have organized crime ties? I would, I would be very shocked. I'd be very. I mean, in Japan, I guarantee you their local promoters do, uh, but to my knowledge, there isn't any. What, what about UFC? Uh, UFC, to my knowledge, none. Like some of the local organizations might have like low-level ties, but none see, of the I, I've heard just the opposite about UFC. No, I can. I've heard just the opposite out of Vegas about UFC. No. Well, I mean, I mean, the owners of the UFC are Las Vegas casino owners, so but they're not bad guys. That settles that. Yeah. That, that settles that for me. It actually does. Hey, Burl, I want you to know that we uh, we have wrestling reports updated weekly uh, from the Great Cleat Dumpster, and it's simply called The Wrestling Report on Outlaw Radio, uh, 24 hours a day and every few hours. Next, Oprah. <laughs> That's the voice of Magic Matt Allen, the man who hosts the show that comes up immediately. So, true podcast. crime smackdown. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Genji. The book is called Break Shot. When does it come out? It comes out August 1st. You can find out more information at mrvbooks.com. We'll also uh, pre-order autographed copies from Kenji and I as well. Oh, I think that's important because after they shoot you, the value is going to go up. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, well, what kind of music you playing back there? Oh, come on. Ha. Oh. This is the kind of stuff that makes the blood boil in my veins. Go ahead, crank it up. I get my headphones up. It's still going on. Huh. Oh, how many hours does this intro go, Matt? It's been a while since I've, you know, played the hits. There was another post. How many have you got on the I think this one's a tape loop. <laughs>